listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. This week, we have with us Amanda Bins, who is a DIR expert training leader. She is currently working on her PhD in communication disorders at Western University in Ontario, and she is a speech and language pathologist. She's also a facilitator for the self-reg program of Dr. Stuart Shanker. And today we're talking about her latest publication, which is entitled The Speech-Language Pathologist's Role in Supporting the Development of Self-Regulation, a Review and Tutorial. Welcome, Amanda. Hey, Daria. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Um, so I guess let's talk a little bit about the fact that uh, you're, you're um, a veteran in the DIR world. You were involved in the DIR uh, study at York University that sparked my interest in floor time, which is the reason why this website exists. And uh, we met shortly after that uh, came about on the national when I contacted you guys to take a look at my little guy. And uh, I thank you for that because um, you guys really got me on the track with floor time. And uh, I thought it was really important today to interview you and share with our listeners this new publication of yours because we really are interested in letting the world know that the developmental approach is the best way to deal with um, children who have developmental differences and certainly in your focus, uh, communication um, challenges. So would you mind uh, telling our listeners about the motivation behind doing this review? Yeah. Um, so. <clears throat> As Daria mentioned, I've, I've worked with the DIR floor time model for a number of years now. Um, and it, it is something that I've seen really help support um, all children that I've been working with. Um, and something that DIR talks about a lot is the concept of self-regulation. Um, and when I first started the work, I felt like self-regulation was something that was mostly talked about within um, the kind of developmental community, but it has become more uh, widespread now. So I know in Ontario, our educational uh, programs are now looking at self-regulation on children's report cards. Um, and so the importance of self-regulation in children's development has been more and more recognized as of late. Um, but there's, there's one issue in that um, the way that people define self-regulation is very different. So Dr. Uh, Jeremy Berman and Stuart Shanker, they wrote an article and they were talking about self-regulation and how um, there was over, I think it was 400 different concepts tied to the idea of self-regulation. And so I really wanted to um, kind of take a look at that and narrow it in, narrow, narrow it down so that we could talk a little bit more about self-regulation and get on the same page. So SLPs would be hopefully on the same page with how they define self-regulation and how they work on self-regulation to support communication. Wow, I had no idea there were that many definitions. I know I've seen, yeah. I've seen different definitions, but 400 is a lot. <laughs> yes, yes. So um, I mm. think where and we did a podcast with Dr. Shanker about self-regulation and a follow-up with a colleague of yours, Eunice Lee, about um, applying self-regulation and different strategies. And 
that the way that they're defining it is really the, comes from the DIR model where the child is calm and alert and shows an interest in a shared world and is able to, to focus and, and be a part of a shared world. And um, I guess in this paper, you're not specifically coming from that. You're, you're more um, describing a framework. Would you like to describe a bit about this paper and, and what you did? Yeah, I think that, I mean, it was myself, uh, Linda Hutchinson, who uh, comes from an education background, and Dr. Janice Cardi, who uh, is also an SLP, who worked on this paper and kind of developed the, the ideas behind it. And we looked at the goals of self-regulation as, one, being exactly what you said. So Self-regulation really helps children to be able to attend to and learn from those social interactions that they're engaged in, um, which is so important for communication and language development. Um, from an educational standpoint, self-regulation also helps children to kind of work towards achieving goals, whether they be um, academic goals or whether they be kind of personal goals. Um, and then self-regulation also helps to develop kind of empathy um, and acting in socially responsible ways. Um, so acting in a caring way if you see a friend who gets hurt um, or kind of following the rules and recognizing what are the rules that can be broken and what are the rules that can't be broken. Um, so when we developed the framework, we really kind of kept all of these ideas in mind. Um, and <clears throat> before we developed the framework, we wanted to make sure that uh, our readers really had kind of a good background as to where we were coming from for, for what our definition of self-regulation was and also how self-regulation develops, right? Because, I mean, we can give somebody a framework, but if they don't understand why, they're doing what they're doing or why we're proposing to start with A and not B, then it becomes kind of inflexible, right? It's, it's more of a follow step A, then B, then D. Um, and we wanted this to be more of a fluid model and framework. So we focused on outlining kind of how self-regulation develops to give clinicians the information that they can share with other colleagues when they're collaborating with them and to share with parents. So one of our big focuses was on that self-regulation, even though it has the word self, isn't something that develops independently, but rather it develops through co-regulated interactions. And can I just ask, uh, when you talk about describing how self-regulation develops, mm -hmm. is this a theory, a model, or is it based on neuroscience and scientific fact as we know it? today because there are lots of people that speculate on why things develop the way they do but what do we know factually and and what part is a model so there there are a great deal of empirical research studies that that do um, kind of underlie um, the model and and how self-regulation develops um, it, one of the kind of neurological reasons why we focus on co-regulation is because in order to self-regulate, so in order to be able to um, kind of recognize, monitor, and manage 
all of your different internal states. So your stress levels, your energy levels, your emotions, you really need to have the executive functions, right? So you need to be able to kind of problem solve, um, reflect on, on what's happening. And that area of the brain is much later to develop right? So we talk about self-regulation and needing to be, all, be able to do all those things when you self-regulate, but yet children's development of kind of that prefrontal cortex doesn't happen until later in adolescence. And so we really need to start with the co-regulation piece, right? So this is supported by, by neuroscience. So a couple of things there uh, that you said are so important. And the first thing we should probably say uh, is defining co-regulation because our listeners and, and readers of affectautism.com should be familiar with co-regulation. I've written a couple blogs about it. We've talked about it in a number of the podcasts where you're essentially um, helping the child calm down, be attentive through your interactions with that child that are mostly effective based on affect and emotion and less on verbal. So um, I wanted to get on that in a second, tying back to what you said about the prefrontal cortex, but can you just define co-regulation? So, I mean, the the simple definition of co-regulation is how people kind of regulate each other's behavior, right? How children and parents kind of work together um, and regulate each other's behavior. So uh, I think uh, two blogs ago was our podcast with Dr. Glavinsky, and he talked exactly about that. He said the way even you and I talking to each other in the podcast, we're co-regulating each other and responding to each other based on what the other brings. And that's, that's, that's co-regulation, but we might be talking specifically about a young child who's completely dysregulated, whether they're hyperactive and, and unable to focus, which is, is a challenge for my son much of the time, or children who have a profile that um, they're very withdrawn and in their own world, and we need to draw them into that share world by co-regulating. So we will upregulate to bring them up, whereas with my son who's upregulated, we might slow down and be quiet to co-regulate co-regulate them down um so um did you want to say anything more about that before I yeah I mean that's a that's a great point so when we even in kind of typical development when we first start co-regulating children the adult usually takes on kind of a bulk of the work, right? The, the larger part of the work. And slowly as the child becomes more and more engaged in those co-regulated interactions, the, the workload starts to kind of even out a little bit until we get to a point where, where maybe we, we enter what um, one of my colleagues would talk about as socially shared regulation. Um, and this, this happens when children have developmental challenges as well. So we need to kind of take on the bulk of the, the co-regulating um, in these interactions as well, help the child kind of feel safe and secure um, and heard and understood as we're responding to them and we get that really nice kind of back and forth interaction going. And as we start to see that happen more and more and more, again, we start to see kind of the, the playing field shift a little bit more so it becomes more of a balanced interaction so 
even starting right from when the child is born, I know um, in the DIR model, Dr. Greenspan talks about those early interactions where the baby might be like, ah, and then you'll be like, oh, sweetie, and bounce them up and down. And that's that co-regulating that lets the baby know, it's okay, it's okay, I'm calming down, I'm calming down. And this is the point I wanted to get back to about the prefrontal cortex. It's not saying, you're okay, you're okay, because the prefrontal cortex is where logic happens, and we're always trying to use these behavioral and rational approaches with young children who aren't thinking that way yet. They are they are functioning completely emotionally, and um, what's uh, what's the word? They're impulsive, impulsively. Uh, they're they're not yet in control of a lot of their impulses. They feel one feeling at a time at first before the prefrontal cortex kicks in and they start to be able to feel more than one feeling at the same time. It's a lot of impulsivity. So um, when you're, when you're soothing a little baby, like, and then you go, Oh, it's okay. It's okay. Oh. You know, you're not saying it's okay, baby. It's okay. Stop it. <laughs> yeah. We do that with toddlers and with young children when they start to get flustered, you're okay. You're okay. So, um, I just wondered if you could highlight that a little bit about why it's focused on affective interactions and some examples of how you might co-regulate a child at different ages. Yeah. So your example of kind of when you have the little baby and you're saying like, Oh, it's okay. It's okay. I think you could be saying like, hullabaloo, hullabaloo. It doesn't matter what you're saying. It's how you're saying it. Right. So the child is picking up on kind of the facial expressions, the tone of your voice, the intonation, all of those different things that are helping to regulate the child. Um, and when children become older, they do start to kind of understand the words along with the affect, right? And so I think, I mean, I catch myself doing it sometimes too, being like, it's okay, it's okay. Um, and I might still say it affectively, but I recognize like, oops, it's not really okay, right? If my daughter falls down and hurts herself, like what my intent is, is to say like, I want you to be okay. <laughs> right? It's not that I'm trying to tell you it's okay. So I think that it's something that, that every parent does, right? And, and, and maybe comes from, from different reasons as to why. So do they want the child to be able to kind of develop, as they say, like grit and be able to be like brush it off and um, I'm all right? Or is it that the parent is kind of feeling that empathy to their child and they're trying to like make it okay with their child. So I, I think you raise a really good point and it's important for us to, to think about what we're saying and how we're saying it, especially as the child gets older because they're making meaning out of, out of both of those things coming together. And just to refer listeners who haven't heard the podcast with Dr. Shanker and with Eunice Lee about self-regulation, we go into some examples about, um, the approach that they take is really proactive. So mm -hmm. once a big meltdown is happening, it's really hard and you sort of just have to wait it out. It's about looking for the signs and the cues before it happens and getting to know when, whoa, okay, now I need to start co-regulating before we go over the, the tipping point. 
Right, right. And, and I think you'll find in the framework that we share too, it very much aligns um, with, with that mentality. So we first think about how to reduce the stress. Now, you might pick up on kind of signs of just a little bit of stress, right? So you want to try and kind of pick up on it before we hit that tipping point where the child gets to kind of full fledged dysregulation. Um, but when you can pick out kind of moments um, or recognize the signs that a child might be starting to become dysregulated, it is much easier to be doing the, the co-regulation at that moment um, rather than, than waiting until um, the kind of prefrontal cortex has completely shut off um, where you, you really can't kind of get to the child until, as Dr. Shanker would say, you turn the alarms off, right? Once those alarms are ringing, they can't really hear anything else. And not only that, but before mm -hmm. our prefrontal cortex shuts off <laughs> yeah. as a parent, because it's so easy to just get so impatient, like, why can't this kid just let me get through doing up his shoes or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> just stand still and, you know, whatever it is. Work. Yeah. Yes. And, and the importance of um, really showing a lot of restraint and control and patience on the part of the mm. caregiver or in this case, a framework for professionals to um, look at how to reduce the stress. And it really means uh, not being in a place of stress yourself. Yeah, which is, which is easier said than done, I think. Um, but it is, that's included in kind of one of the, the co-regulation strategies that we suggest to help reduce stress is to kind of check in on our own states. Um, we talk about kind of emotional contagion, right? And recognizing that as we become more dysregulated, it's harder for us to kind of downregulate and, and um, be that kind of grounding force for the child if, if we're sitting up here as well, right? So we kind of snowball. Um, so that is kind of one of the strategies that, that we focus on um, is having the adults, the SLP or whoever it is working with the child kind of check in on their own regulation um, and support their own regulation so that they can be that kind of grounding force or that anchor for the child. Right. Um, I did want to share my screen for a moment and hopefully find the page that I wanted to share, um, <laughs> which is uh, the link to your paper. And it should be here. Let's see. You can let me know, Amanda, if you can see it sure. right now. Can you see it? Yes, I can see it now. Okay, so this is the review article in the Journal of Communication Disorders, Volume 78, March, April 2019, pages 1 to 17, The Speech-Language Pathologist's Role in Supporting the Development of Self-Regulation, a Review and Tutorial. Now, um, this article for listeners, it's free to download until February 19th, and you can click right here on the download PDF. Um, but I did want to... Um, go to this, are you able to see this figure? Yes. So Amanda, um, in this framework, you, you put, this is quite a diagram, so maybe <laughs> you can walk us a little bit through it, although the text is kind of hard to see on the screen, and for listeners, they won't be seeing it all, they'll just be hearing <laughs> us speak, but um, 
how does this align with the developmental individual differences relationship based model or the DIR model, DIR floor time um, that uh, we've been talking about and that affect autism is, is based upon? Okay, so this is a figure that kind of outlines the, the framework for how to think about supporting a child's regulation. Um, so it starts with identifying um, stressors that the child might be having. And then um, once we've identified stressors and um, checked in to make sure that they're within our scope of practice as a speech language pathologist, um, then we look to work towards um, strategies of reducing the stress, right? So we mentioned one, one strategy that is important for us to think about is kind of checking in with our own stress levels and making sure that we ourselves are regulated so that we can help to kind of ground that child and, and help them feel more secure. There are a number of other strategies that uh, we have listed um, in the paper as well. So you can see there's um, within table two of the, the article, um, there are a number of different co-regulation strategies for reducing stress. Um, and some of the examples um, come from just simple things like making sure that the, the child has had food, um, checking in to see if the child has slept. Um, all of those different things will um, help us to understand um, where the stress is coming from. Um, we can also look at kind of making environmental changes, right? So if we recognize that, oh, this child is really sensitive to um, visual information, maybe what we can do in our sessions, during our interactions, is we can reduce the amount of kind of visual clutter that is in the environment. Maybe we can kind of slow down um, our, our movements as we're coming into the child to allow the child to kind of process the visual information as we're moving in towards them. So there's a lot of different ideas that we have, um, <clears throat> pardon me, outlined. Um, and they're just kind of examples, right? The strategies will change depending on the child. It's not kind of A plus B equals C and you're going to find results. So this is a bit of kind of uh, a bit of an experiment, right? So we recognize, okay, this child has a stressor. Um, I think it's this. I mean, sometimes the child can tell us what the stressor is, but oftentimes with the children I'm working with who have communication challenges, they're not able to express what the stressor is. So it's a little bit of a, a guessing game and we have to do some kind of detective work. And we try out a few different strategies, um, see what works. Sometimes it's a combination of different strategies that we need to use to support um, the, the child. Uh, and then, Hopefully we find something that works for the child and, and then we can kind of move on and, and work to strengthen uh, some of those foundational skills important for self-regulating. And I think <laughs> to recognize there is what you said, it's, it's a trial and error. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it might take a few sessions before uh, a professional who's working with a child will understand that child and understand what's happening. Even if you've talked to the parent in advance, um, it, a lot of it is trial and error. You might think 
that it might be a visual distraction and you work on that and then you're still having that issue. So then you work on something else to try and see what it is that's helping the child feel safe and comfortable. Sometimes it's just the therapist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sometimes there's a personality clash or if it's personality, I don't know, but sometimes, um, your child just doesn't like one particular person and, and maybe it's the tone of their voice. Maybe it's the pitch of their voice. So it really is trial and error. And I think that's the part that gets frustrating for people, especially parents is that we want clear cut like steps to follow. And we want to know exactly how do I do this and how do I do that? And even if you find something that works, then things change in a month and you've got to do it all again. So it's constantly in a state of fluid, <laughs> fluid problem solving on our part. Right, right. And, and as you say that too, I mean, that requires kind of mental flexibility and cognitive energy, right? So um, if we're helping either therapists or parents to do this, we want to make sure that we're also supporting their regulation because we need to recognize that, that this kind of model in and of itself can be cognitively taxing, right? To be constantly thinking and reevaluating. Um, so my experience is very effective um, in, in doing this, but, but it's not an easy feat. And so I think making sure that as a therapist, we're there to support the child, but also kind of either the professional or the parent who's implementing this model is another thing that we really need to make sure that we consider. We didn't focus our paper on, on that aspect of the work because um, that can be an entire paper in and of itself but but it is something really important for us to think about yes and Eunice really alluded to that a lot in the podcast we did with her um, about applying self-regulation after uh, we spoke with Dr. Shanker mm-hmm. um, and so really you may have written this paper for speech and language pathologists but as we've, as we've talked about, it's really applicable to many professionals and to parents alike. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. Um, so as we were writing it, um, we had different people read the paper and they're like, really, do you want to focus this on uh, just work for SLPs? Um, but because of my clinical background um, and the clinical background of Dr. Janice Cardi, we found that there, there wasn't a ton of information out there for speech-language pathologists. So there's a lot of information for mental health providers on how to support um, regulation and occupational therapists on how to support regulation, but it, it, it really wasn't something that was widely discussed within the speech and language field, and so we felt that we really wanted to make sure that we could kind of support uh, this work within, within our field as well. So going back to the paper then, so it, it's really... Um, Just for our listeners to understand, you have a framework set up that the professionals can follow and the steps they can take to help support self-regulation in children, starting with co-regulating and looking at all of those things that you mentioned um, and constantly doing this trial and error uh, dance, as Dr. Gordon Neufeld calls it, yeah. uh, doing the dance where you're trying to find the best state of um, where you can get the most out of practicing your speech and language uh, skills. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a that's a good analogy for it. 
Um, so what kind of feedback have you received so far from this paper, having just been published, what, a week or so ago? Yeah, I've had a lot of speech and language pathologists reach out to me and say that the work um, really resonates with them and they think that um, it will be really helpful in supporting their clinical work. Um, I've also had other professionals like occupational therapists and educators connect with me as well and um, say how a lot of the information really applies to, to what they're doing in the classroom or um, might also help to kind of foster communication between occupational therapists and speech language pathologists so that um, they can both uh, kind of come together and, and work on the child's self-regulation, which, which is so important. So I wonder if... Um before we sign off, you could walk through a scenario where you're the speech language pathologist in a clinical setting and a client comes to you and maybe an example comes to mind uh, or maybe you'll think of one in the next minute or so um, and you know you can give us a little background on the child's age or situation mm -hmm. and um, you have to do this mm -hmm. so you're essentially following the steps in your paper. Can you walk us through how it starts, what you see, what you do, and, mm -hmm. and how you work through that? Yeah, um, so let's say we enter a classroom situation um, and we're wanting to support a young child um, who has a diagnosis of autism. Um, we've looked in the child's file and we see that there's a report from an occupational therapist who notes that the child does have some challenges with um, kind of being sensitive to sensory input. Um, so we watch the child um, in a few different settings um, and I think it's important to do kind of these observational um, assessments as well because it helps us to recognize what's happening in the moment um, and in the context of the child's real life, right? We can read reports where the child has kind of undergone some sort of standardized testing, um, but that only tells us how the child was kind of operating in that moment, right? So we want to see the child in different contexts. So I always like to see um, in the school setting, maybe if I can pull the child out and have a little bit of one-on-one -on -one time, see how things might, might look um, different, do they look the same, and then maybe even during recess where things are a little bit more unstructured. Um, and so then we start to kind of apply some of the strategies, right? So we recognize that, okay, so sensory um, stimuli, especially kind of the, the loud noises seem to be really affecting this child. Um, we might look at just some simple environmental modifications that can be made, right? Are we able to kind of make the classroom a little bit quieter? And I think teachers are really good at doing this and are recognizing the importance of, of doing these things. Um, but then we want to also think about our interaction styles and how we're supporting the child's um, interactions. So we might recognize that the child seems to be more dysregulated maybe during math class. Um, again, a very cognitively taxing um, time. It requires a lot of cognitive energy, um, can reduce <laughs> our energy when we're concentrating so hard. Um, so maybe we make um, additional modifications during that time period. When we're sitting down to support the child, we might kind of 
use more simplified language, use some visuals to help the child understand the concepts that are being taught. Um, and again, we might have shown the visuals on the board as we're discussing it with the entire class, but it might be important to kind of reiterate what it was that was said in the more noisy um, teaching um, time and reiterated that one-on-one -on -one with the child where we can then share um, that that helpful visual information with them. Um, and, and then it kind of work with that child. Um, we talk about kind of making sure that before we move to the next step, that it is developmentally appropriate to move on to the next step. So this very much aligns with DIR, right? So the, the first set of strategies that we talk about um, focusing on reducing the stress really align with the functional emotional developmental levels, maybe one through three. Once we get to the, the second set of strategies, we're looking at kind of building some more of the executive functions um, and metacognitive skills that, that happen maybe four or five six-ish um, within the FEDCs. So depending on whether or not the child is ready for that, right, we want to see that the child is able to engage um, with us and pick up on kind of the social information and the academic information that we're trying to have the child access in those moments um, before we start to move on to those stages. So if the child is doing a little bit of math, I might say that we would move on to the second stage. Um, and we might start to kind of introduce some simple problem solving um, activities that or simple problem solving situations that arise in, in daily life. Right. So if the child can't find their boots instead of like running and grabbing their boots for them right away, we might engage them in helping us to to problem solve and find the boots and looking in different places. Again, checking in to make sure that this kind of cognitively stressful activity isn't too stressful for the child. Um, if it becomes too stressful, again, we go back to the the first section where we're looking to reduce the stressors. Um, and you'll find in the paper, at the end of the paper, there are kind of three different case studies that I go through that, that help us um, to think about how to apply the strategy for different children um, presenting at different developmental levels. And when people that aren't necessarily familiar with um, this model, the DIR model or developmental approach, uh, they might hear this and say, that's not what speech language pathologist does. When I bring my kid to the speech language pathologist, they're saying, say, th, three, three, tree, no, th, th, tongue between your teeth. Yeah. And I didn't hear you describe anything about specific pronunciation or anything like we would think about in terms of speech and language. This is really a developmental approach that talks about preparing the child to be able to relate and communicate with others. Did you want to talk a little bit about that? So, yes, I, I am very much a developmental therapist. So the examples that I kind of pull from tend to be quite um, developmental. And I do focus on supporting children's kind of communication as a whole. Um, I don't focus my my caseload doesn't um, consist of a lot of children with articulation challenges, as you have 
shared. So something like working on the TH sound um, would be more of an articulation um, focus of therapy. Um, and although I didn't use that as an example, you can still apply the model to working on speech production. Um, so when we're as an SLP, when we're working on speech production, one of the goals is to have the child be able to generalize those skills that are learned during sessions, right? So they need to have kind of the metacognitive ability to reflect, did I just stick my tongue between my teeth? Uh, how did that feel in the moment? Did I, did I do it right? Did I not do it right? To be able to kind of carry over that work. And so um, when we're working on self-regulation at that level, we're starting kind of at the, the higher level, um, more towards the executive functioning, metacognition, um, and helping the child kind of really check in with their learning goals, helping them to kind of co-construct the goals. Okay, so when do you want to work on this, right? So do you want to try it during recess time? Do you want to try it during reading? Um, and maybe have the child do that, and then you talk about, okay, so which one do you think worked the best? And then maybe you talk about why, right? Because we might think that during recess is a little bit trickier for the child to do it because they're also running around and trying to navigate social interactions with their friends. So you can help them develop this kind of self-awareness, um, which in turn will help them hopefully be able to carry over the skills learned in, in their sessions as well. Yeah, and that's so important because I don't think the general public thinks of speech and language services as the way you just described it. It's, it's really um, focused a lot. And, you know, if people bring their child to a speech language pathologist, it usually is because they aren't speaking yet or they're having trouble pronouncing words properly, quote unquote. Um, so to have to be focused on that, which, like you said, is a developmentally higher skill set because you have to be able to reflect, like, did I put my tongue between my teeth when I said <laughs> or whatever, that kind of thing. When, when you're developmentally younger and, and not even um, in a, in a self-regulated state where you can engage and relate with others and communicate your needs, it's kind of hard to generalize uh, a lesson because the child might not even be attending. And so um, I think I think education is important and, and hearing podcasts like this for parents who are new to this approach to really understand before you can even get to working on some of the things that you might be focused on, mm. we need to really focus on the early social emotional capacities. The podcast that I've done with Dr. Glavinsky the foundation academics um, podcast I did with Dr. Gil Tippy and, and all of the stuff that we focus on in the blog here that you've just described so nicely, which is really a developmental approach, helping the child um, function in a social setting and being able to generalize that to other social settings and being able to have that self-awareness and, and being able to reflect on whether, um, it worked better or worse and, and what their preferences are. I loved that you check in with the child and say, would you like to do it in reading or at recess? And, and what would you like to work on first? So I think it really does highlight uh, just a very different approach to therapy and intervention in 
specifically in speech language pathology uh, versus more behavioral strategies and behavioral approaches that tend to be the norm out there. Mm. So um, thank you so much. Is there anything else you wanted to mention about the paper that uh, our listeners would need to know besides the fact, reminder again, that you can download it for free before February 19th, 2019. Yeah, and it, you will be able to gain access to it um, after that date, but it will be um, more accessible through kind of university access or hospital access um, after that date as well. So um, if, you, if you have any questions, uh, you can feel free to reach out to me as well. My email is on... The, the paper, um, abins3 at uwo.ca. Um, and thank you for listening to us and your interest in the topic. Thank you, Amanda. And for the listeners uh, or the viewers, if you're watching on YouTube, there's a link right below in the description to the paper and to the blog post at affectautism.com. And just look up Amanda Bins or look up speech language pathology in a search and you'll find it. And I will put links to different things that we talked about, including some of the past podcasts that I referred to. So thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you for having me. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through play.